Hey everybody, welcome to another Whiskey Web and Whatnot with Charles W. Carpenter III and Robbie Wagner, your friends from ShipShape. Not sure that we've actually mentioned where we're from before, honestly. Um, but hopefully it's on the branding somewhere. Well, it is, yeah. But yeah, um, today we have Wild Turkey Kentucky Spirit, which is probably the most Kentucky I've seen on a bottle in a while. Kentucky Spirit, Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. Um, guessing maybe they make it in Kentucky? <laughs> it, does it mention that anywhere on the bottle? Um, um, I think it's made in yes. Oklahoma. I don't know. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> it's Kentucky Spirit straight from Oklahoma. Yeah, this is like a seems from the description, like just, you know, your standard bourbon. So, but single barrel. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things is that uh, it's a wild turkey that is selected as a single barrel. I don't know how this mash bill differs from, I would think it would be slight difference from their normal 101, but uh, I didn't really think about that. But it is, it should be kind of similar. It is 101 proof to you. So that's nice. Oh, I guess I should pour. My first comments about this bottle. Uh, one, they've changed the bottle then from what it used to be. Uh, Robbie, I know you haven't tried this before, but it used to be kind of like this shell kind of shape. Mm-hmm. Um, it's always been a single barrel product, but it used to be this kind of like shell shape. And now they've slimmed the bottle down um, for whatever reasons. Marketing looks a little fancier and modernized, but the plastic on mine at least did not have any perforation. It was very difficult to remove, so I just want to... First I had the same that. problem. Yeah. I had to use okay. scissors multiple times. Yeah. Uh, my scissors are called teeth, but <laughs> still, it's, it's just, right. just a matter of not getting back up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, tastes like bourbon to me. Like it's got a lot of woodiness. It's got, you know, feels more like it's got lots of corn than our usual rise. Um, mm, yeah. Wait till we get to the mash bill part. You're, it's very intuitive of you. I'm impressed. I'm going to guess 85% corn. Um, well, let's, let's, before we break down the mash bill, let's, let's <laughs> get all what you are oh. smelling and uh, tasting. I smell a little like lime a little or something like that. I don't know. Um, I don't taste that, but I do get more of like a caramel in the, in the flavor and a little bit of, uh, what was I going to say here? Oh, cinnamon. Yeah, cinnamon on the finish. Yeah, I'm I'm getting just mostly like wood and leather. Like <laughs> very woody, leathery. Like I'm, I'm really not able to taste many of the subtle notes. Um, hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I, um, I have to say it's not quite as woody for me as as the normal uh, 101 seems to be. Like I always get a lot of like. I think there's more corn in this compared to the normal one because that other one, as uh, I may have expressed in a previous 
uh, podcast episode, but I have toured the Wild Turkey Distillery and the kind gentleman who led our tour. Yeah, no, I mean, whatever. (laughs) And the kind gentleman who led our tour, uh, his name was Bubba, and he had kind of a catchphrase. He said, here at Wild Turkey, we like our bourbon bold. And that was kind of like an over and over and would talk about different aspects of the process or their mash bill or whatnot. And then reference, you know, referencing back to bold. We like our bourbon bold. Yeah, I would agree with that. Like on the back end, you have a lot of alcohol. It feels like you have a lot of wood, like they're not doing anything subtly. It's all like, you know, we're making bourbon. You're going to taste it. But, Mm -hmm. you know, that being said, it's pretty good. Um, I still prefer a rye, but like if I were drinking normal whiskey, I don't have any complaints. Mm-hmm. I don't think with this one. Yeah. So the mash bill is 75% corn, 13% rye, 12% malted barley. So that is helpful. Um, yeah, I went and looked it up this time, uh, or at least as much as I can just to, have some sort of info and let's see what I can find out. Yeah, here we go. Let me find the normal 101, which also has the exact same mash bill. <laughs> so this is basically just a single barrel pick yeah. of the same mash bill as their normal 101 bourbon. Non-blended. Yeah, no blends. No blends across barrels. So you get some consistency there. It does tell yeah. us which uh which what day it was bottled, uh, what barrel number, uh, which Rick house. So it's warehouse a Rick seven for my bottle. I am warehouse G Rick 33. So nowhere close. So, right. If we were anywhere close to one another and could do the quote unquote Pepsi challenge from one to the other, you technically should be able to taste a difference. Well, people can, I might not, but Maybe without the ice, you know, you'll get a little, we can, yeah. we're, we're going to plan a future where we get together with some Glen Carnes and just t- taste things in a more natural way. And hopefully with glasses that I don't break, uh, <laughs> for listeners recalling a few episodes ago where we talked about our Norland glasses, I broke one of those. So now I've been very careful about using it very often anymore. Did you break it? On one of the podcasts or was it right before? It was right before. Yeah. We were like, I was bringing stuff in to my office slash studio slash bedroom and had a few things in my hand and just like it knocked over and broke. I'm going to be honest all too easily. Um, (laughs) Perhaps I should be more careful, but also like it didn't seem like it was pretty much very much to shatter the outside layer. Well, it sounds to me like Norland should send us one so that you can get the full experience when we do our lots of whiskey tasting. I wouldn't be opposed. Um, <laughs> feel free to email me, Chuck, at shipshape.io. I, I tweet them, but I don't do that. Tweeting, twitting. I don't twit. <laughs> anyway, um, so I would give this, I think, a seven tentacles. Uh, it's pretty good. No complaints for me. Yeah. Uh, agree. Yeah. I'm going to go straight seven with this one too. I would buy this on a regular basis easily suggested, uh, 
the bottle is nice. I bring it to a party and not look like a cheapo. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I enjoyed it. I, uh, I'm i not sure if I like it better than the Russell's Reserve 10-year, to be honest, but uh, I'm not sure if you've tried that one. We can maybe nope. make that a future tester. But, uh, yeah, that's another Wild Turkey product, and it's pretty good. And I think the price point is a little bit lower than this one, so food for thought there in the future. Yeah, I had never had anything but the, like, you know, standard cheap wild turkey. So I didn't really know the extent of their products until today. Have you had the rye? Nope. Or just the bourbon? Wow. Was it the standard? I think the standard is 80 proof or maybe it's 90, but it's not 101. Yeah, I mean, it's it's whatever, you know, is the equivalent to all the middle of the line whiskeys. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, we will have to take you on an adventure. Yeah. Speaking of adventures, this week has been a lot. (laughs) Um, You know, on a good note, we had EmberConf, which was pretty good. Didn't get to watch all the talks yet, but definitely enjoyed the keynote with the decade of Ember and all the ups and downs and, and all of that. Uh, did you catch any of that? I did not uh, this year, unfortunately, just because I've been a bit disconnected from working with Ember recently. I uh, I did not jump on and watch any of the things. I would probably watch a few, uh, you know, a- afterwards. Um, I am curious, though. Normally, uh, at the end of the keynote, there's some big reveal. Wonder was was that a thing this year? And if so, what was it? Um. I don't think so. I mean, there was a lot of stuff like, so, so there was the normal keynote where Yehuda kind of walked through, like, this is how we started with our, our releases and talked about like how Firefox had a certain release cadence um, that was like, you know, kept getting pushed back. Right. So they were like, all right, it's, I think it was like 2004 or seven or I don't know, some long time ago that, and he was like, all right, here's, the releases we're going to do code freezes for these releases and they miss them. And then like they just, they kept pushing, pushing it down the line and, and never making it. So kind of Chrome, when they came in and released Chrome, they had more of a, let's just ship stuff on a you know defined cadence. And if something's not ready, it doesn't have to go in this release. Like we're still going to do a release, but we're not going to wait on all the things. So Ember kind of adopted that. And that's really been the, the emphasis behind, you know, having a release every six weeks and stability without stagnation. And like, no one has to feel forced to get work done or like get a feature out or, you know, whatever it can just go in the next one. Um, and that kind of also goes along with deprecations and things. Like if you miss the say 3.0 deprecations, that's okay. You can just say my deprecation will be removed in 4.0. Um, so yeah, they were basically talking about how their process has been around consistency and uh, not working developers too much. Like, you know, it's all of us work on this in our free time. So, well, minus those that are paid like Yehuda and Robert Jackson and, you know, the the heavy hitters. But, uh, yeah, so, so like they wanted to have it be easier on the, the community, consistent, Um, they wanted to, uh, one of the big things they talked about was like 
back in the 1.13 days, all those deprecations piling up that people had to deal with, and then uh, the switch to Glimmer because the, their rendering was not up to par with React, and then once they got to Glimmer 2, it was, like, faster than React, and, you know, they were just taking you... I won't go through every single thing, but they, they were basically taking you through all the steps up until now, um, you know, showing that they've been stable the whole time, they've really increased performance, and that, you know, people that haven't tried Ember recently should try all the new stuff out. And then they followed all of that stuff up with uh, Godfrey had a thing where he just pulled up like, here's all the new stuff that's been working on. Like we got embroider coming out. We got uh, some of the things we did in Ember inspector this year where you have like, you can see components better. You can inspect their arguments easier. Um, You can turn off and on like the debug stuff in templates. So like your production builds are smaller and, you can like opt out of like it working with inspector in production and, and that kind of thing. Um, and then a lot of things that you've seen in other frameworks, I know I'm rambling here, but uh, like uh, slots, I know they have in view. I'm not sure what the equivalent is in react, but like um, where you have a, a template and you want to like yield to a couple different places in it, which I guess in react you would just use JavaScript in each spot to like, in stuff right or is there something for that specific you well no you can uh is it kind of like outlet or is it Mm -hmm. different okay yeah it just has children so you just have where children go here any child component falls through at this point so instead of like outlet or yield uh what this is is like you say yield to equals header yield to equals footer, whatever you want to put different content in different spots. Um, so that they, they call that slots in view. And that's, um, I think even, I think that's a HTML thing like that, that they're working on is or JavaScript or, you know, whoever's in charge of the web these days is like, <laughs> we got slots and slots are this thing where you can inject content into a spot. Um, so we have that now and we have, um, you know, we got glimmer everywhere, tracked properties. Um, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of cool stuff. I think modifiers were heavily mentioned and, um, I think things you can like, so with contextual components before you would yield out like, (coughs) excuse me, you would yield out a bunch of components, right? So you have a hash that's like, uh, the example was a, a table. So you have like a row or column or different things. You may want to have a lot of that you yield out and you consume and use that thing that was yielded out. Um, you can also yield out like modifiers and helpers now. Um, so they're just trying to make everything really kind of pass everything you want back and forth, do whatever you want, a little more flexible. Um, yeah, I will, I will pause my rambling here. If you want to weigh in on anything. No, no. I mean, that sounds cool. Yeah, I recall uh, contextual components, and that was like a real massive hotness back in two. Um, So obviously doing a little more with the same ideology across other things to make it uh, more straightforward uh, in terms of the ways that you can, like have an abstracted component, but then apply specifics as needed. Yeah, there's also um, some cool stuff, which, again, I mean, it's hard to compare with React, right? Because React has, like, 
straight up JavaScript in a lot of spots. But um, Ember has this thing that was released like a week or two ago called Glint, which is mm. linting for Glimmer, I guess, is what Glint came from. But it's it's more like TypeScript for templates. So you can know if your, you know, this.foo is a number or not in your template. Um, gotcha. Right. So that's I- that's coming out and template imports are coming out. So like really emphasis on making templates the bomb in general. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, because obviously in the React world, uh, it's just JSX, which you have TSX, and then they just, you know, uh, th- there's kind of no boundaries there. You can apply the same rules to, yeah. to lint and enforce types within your templates themselves. Uh, but of course... The problems with that getting really overly complex and terse, and then that's where people want to have higher order components to split some of those up. And then in the next world, you have pages instead to sort of play that role as both your route and higher order component. But then in the Wild West, that is React, you can combine all of those strategies, potentially. (laughs) Yeah, or you can just use Next because it has so much cool stuff. Like uh, something I've been doing a lot in Nuxt, not to be confused with Next, is um, using their image optimization library. And you can do like a query param and say like uh, question mark WebP, right? And that will convert mm-hmm. all of your images to WebP for you. Like in the build, so that everything that's shipped out is just WebP format instead of uh, like a JPEG or whatever, um, which I think I've, I haven't done a ton of next myself, but I know they do image optimization. So I'm guessing things like that happen just magically with next. Yeah. So they have like two levels of that. So they have a similar thing just for general image optimization, but they also have like kind of on the fly optimization, like at the request level, but that you only get all of that for free out of the box if you use Vercel because Vercel turns routes or pages into serverless functions. Um, But I was just reading a thing yesterday, today, one of those, very recently, um, and it was an article about uh, creating a serverless function to serve that same purpose for uh, for a next application that might be server-side generated or rendered uh, on the fly and then like you can use this serverless function to do your image optimization like one step further so so is that what they do behind the scenes if you deploy to Vercel they just have a yeah. function that you don't see that switches the image basically absolutely that is that uh, their serverless hosting is structured specifically for next applications so it splits them in that way for efficiency's sake and bundle sizes and all that kind of stuff. And then also when you're doing things like taking advantage of their static site generation, uh, um, then you know, you'll get some of those. You get access to all those things because they know how to hook into it. As long as you follow you know, the, the next way, then you get all that for free. Yeah, that makes sense. And it's interesting that Netlify recently uh, released next specific deployments, but I don't know if they're offering like similar feature sets. So, 
Yeah, I saw that they were pushing more on serverless functions in general, but I I didn't see that they were saying Next was like a first class citizen there. Yeah, yeah, they. Uh, this is very recently, within the last week or two, they I believe they released that they're embracing that as a framework specific deployment strategy. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they have the whole like serverless functions as well, which makes those really. Um, really approachable for a lot of people. And I think like coming from a front end JavaScript world might find that a lot more approachable than the AWS path, which isn't too crazy. Once you get into it, you know, the serverless framework is pretty strong and uh, using services like seed.run, which we do for our API, like that takes some of the guesswork out of it. Um, So shout out to them. Um, But uh when you have these other services like Netlify, like kind of like building on top of that and, and giving you like a really friendly interface for that, I think that's going to really help spread serverless computing. Yeah, definitely. I mean, right now I think it's just, it's not super new, but it's slow to gain traction, I guess. So it's, there isn't really a defined easy way for all the things. So once it gets more mass adoption, there will be a lot more like sugar on top, I guess, make it easier for everybody. Exactly. I think, and that's the term right there, mass adoption, right? Like it's had a strong framework for a while. It's been around for a number of years uh, and had a a strong following of people that are digging in and and utilizing it in, in great ways. But yeah, it's mass adoption is now really being seen across a bunch of different industries. I've, read a few different articles about serverless adoption and different use cases. And that seems to be growing and growing. Yeah. You know what else has mass adoption? Buying Porsches. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Actually. Yeah. That's, it's interesting. I mean, they are so, and it's Porsche by the way. I mean, I'm not German, but I don't own one. So Porsche (laughs) it's a, yeah. America. It's, I'm here. What are you trying to make me change the way I say the word for? Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's hey, their word. We are word. drinking I, I Kentucky Spirit. It's Porsche. <laughs> yeah, right. So, <laughs> you know, I'm very torn culturally, you know. I am both German from the Cincinnati area of northern Kentucky. Um, so there's just all these things tugging at me around these. But So I'll try and uh, lean in on one or so. Yeah, the... Porsche market, secondary market, is pretty insane. Um, so, uh, spoiler alert, I have one. I've had a few of them over the years. Nothing overly fancy. Just uh, It's called the 996 model. It's 20 years old, but it's fun, and I don't drive very much, so it works. Um, yeah, and I always kind of... I'm part of the Porsche Club of America. I like to look at cars for fun and I have friends that I discuss that topic with perhaps that's in a whole other podcast I don't know um, but yeah the secondary market for people getting in uh, it's the barrier to entry is just growing and growing like sites like bringatrailer.com you're seeing these cars that used to sell for 10, 15, 20 thousand dollars going for 10,000 over what they were a year ago and then of course even more desirable cars uh, newer models or specific models are going for like double what they were just a couple of years ago. And I have some some friends who have been 
wanting to buy like an 80s or 90s air-cooled Porsche and now their barrier to, barrier to entry on that has uh, has really grown because it's twenty thirty thousand dollars over what they would have paid just two years ago. I don't know if this is the result of stonks or crypto growth or whatever else, but there's an excess of cash being flown into the luxuries market or the collectors market, and everything seems to be growing. So that's one facet, and I know that we we sort of. Uh, you know, highlighted this last week is that you and I have very different ideas of what we enjoy in automobiles, but we have the fact that we like cars together, but yeah, then it starts to go. (laughs) I mean, I wouldn't say that we enjoy different things necessarily, just that uh, we're not a hundred percent aligned. Like we can probably both agree that we like a car with a nice sound, like a good exhaust of some sort. And like, has some kind of power to it. Um, but I like to be able to open my engine up and just bolt stuff on there. Like, Oh, I want to swap out like this manifold. Okay. Like that's fine. Um, I want to swap my gears out or like, you know, anything that's like a bolt on improvement, get a little more horsepower, a little more acceleration is super easy with, things like a Mustang or like, you know, American cars. Whereas a Porsche, you've got to like pull the whole like seat out, like find the engine somewhere. Like you can't, it's not a tinkerer's car. It's more of a like. Mm. So I want to, I want to get your point of reference because I, like I said, I've had a few of them and my current one I actually bought this one because it was inexpensive and because I could do some things myself. So I can put an intake on. It already has a custom exhaust. I changed out my shifter to put it in a short shift. I've, um, so so I changed the wheels. Um, so I've done some improvements like that myself, like my, uh, on my spring cleaning agenda is actually to pull the front bumper so that I can clean the radiators and, and uh, touch up some of the plastics and stuff that are sun faded. So, yeah, I wanted to get into that. I know this has you know some electronics, but nothing too crazy. I've had in the past like '60s and '70s Porsches, uh, and then my my last one that was newer was like a 2008 911 4S, pre kids, of course. And that one I probably was more hesitant to do very much with, but like, so I'm wondering a when you're talking about going behind seats or whatever else, so. Are you referencing the Boxster? Because that's a mid-engine car that does require you to either, you can access some things behind the seats. Otherwise, you have to like lift the car because there's no engine access other than underneath for the most part. So so I I guess I have two questions. Yeah, so I I guess I have two answers. So so one is, yeah, um, that was kind of my point of reference was like Rob was talking about to even change the oil in his Boxster. You have to take like all the seats out and like, I don't know, a bunch of stuff. Um, But I was kind of like, obviously they're all different. There's different models, but um, the engines are in the back on all of them. Right. So like, isn't there less space to work in there either way, or is it still pretty accessible? So, well, that's a great question. So nine elevens, everything's in the back. Um, Seven eighteens or any like, Cayman Boxster would have engines in the middle. It's a mid-engine car. And then 
uh, Panameras or older ones like 928s, 944s. Those are front engine cars. So there are some models that do the front engine, although, you know, there are some purists that don't love that. It's the, it belongs in the back. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not didactic around those specifics, which is as a side note, why I really want to take on, even though it doesn't have the growl of an internal combustion engine, like, there's something about the Porsche experience that, like, even when I doubt them, like when I test drove a Macan, I was like, SUV Porsche, no way, this is dumb. It was amazing. It was great. <laughs> so I kind of trust them, like, well, how they're going to go into these other things. But, yes, so it is true that a rear engine, uh, and theirs specifically, does have a bit less room. Uh, you can get to a lot just with some easy jacks or just, like, a ramp popping uh, just the the top like you can do a decent amount of things like you don't need a lift necessarily to change the oil on an i11 um and it's great great granddaddy is uh, a volkswagen bug and uh that's basically how i learned how to work on cars was in a volkswagen bug because if you break something it it costs 15 dollars to replace so <laughs> yeah, it's not a big deal say. but yeah you can do all of that without lifting without dropping the engine without like the boxster is kind of a unique experience in in all those things and it takes away some of it i actually had a 914 which is also a mid-engine porsche from the 70s and you could access some things over top it at least had a top hatch that gave you a little bit of room because it wasn't a convertible it was a, a target top um, so you had some under and some some over, but still was a pretty tight space. I don't know. I mean, I guess it just depends. There you go. Mm-hmm. Depends on the car you pick. Depends on the year. Depends on like how much you're willing to to tinker with. I'm definitely yeah. not going to like drop and rebuild an engine, no matter whether it's a Mustang or a or Porsche or whatever. Yeah, fair enough. Um, what year did you say your Porsche was? My current one is a 2000. Okay. Because so I was going to say um, 2000 is probably new enough, but, like, do you do much with tuning and, like, like actually fiddling with the computers or, like, no? Nah. Not yet, but I've done some research. I actually looked into, like, building a Raspberry Pi that you could plug into the uh, OBD2 set up Mm -hmm. and get data or you know you can there's certain ones where you can kind of hack your way in and do some tuning i'm a little mixed about that i'm not sure uh it's interesting to me but there's i think there's a time commitment i'm not prepared for it with kids this young um but you can you can do that you can totally mess everything up like yeah exactly i had a a tuner for my mustang that bluetooth to my phone which sounds cool and easy, right? Until like mid flashing a different tune or whatever, like it stops and doesn't connect to the Bluetooth and your card just doesn't work right. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> so and you got to yeah, tow it to the dealer and have them reflash it and charge you a bunch of money. Well, no, I, I just spent many hours fixing it, but it was pretty annoying. So if anyone is looking to tune their car, do not go with Bluetooth. Do not recommend yeah. But anyway, um, it was kind of cool because, like, the idea with it being Bluetooth was you could have, you know, your three or four, whatever many tunes you want. And you could say, like, all right, I'm going on a long drive. I want fuel economy so I can, like, swap it. And then, um, you know, I want performance, so I'll put that on. 
Uh, that part was cool because you, as you're setting your phone up with your music for your drive or whatever, you can also just swap the tune out real fast. Um, but in it's better in theory than it is in actual execution. Yeah, it's sort of how a lot of people will tell you, like, Wi-Fi networks in general are, they come with a lot of cons. Because if you just plug into an Ethernet, you know, you don't have interruptions, disconnects, security concerns. You have a closed network at that point versus a potential open network. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I don't know. Was there a commercial or just something in like social media recently where people were like, do you guys know you could plug into the internet? And like, it's like a big (laughs) thing now where like, like, you know, what's really fast and does well plugging in. Oh yeah. That's crazy. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. I mean, Wi-Fi six is pretty awesome and yada, yada, yada. But if you just, it's probably, cheaper too to run cat six all over your house oh it definitely is but yeah wi-fi six is like i just switched to the same router but wi-fi six and it was like a third faster Mm. so definitely worth it yeah yeah i I got a massive speed bump out of that as well highly encouraged by you um (laughs) yeah wi-fi six was legit bumped uh i'm lucky enough to have fiber in my neighborhood and bumped that up for the same price, which is so strange how providers do that. They just secretly provide packages to try to lure new people. So unless you're looking on a regular basis, you you don't know. Well, they're uh, also not going to give you better things without you asking for it, right? They're not going to be like, oh, you're paying X and it now gets like this speed. Why would we give that to you when you would have to look it up first? So. Yeah, they're not really incentivized otherwise because, uh, you know, you are you would have to switch to another provider completely may not have the same service options. Yeah, there's if you're lucky enough to even have a second service provider for these things. I have two in my neighborhood and you have your plain old cable and then happen to have fiber as an alternative. And of course, I'm going to pick that. It's just apples and oranges, but. Yeah, I guess they'll collect my money, and I'm sure they did for quite some time at whatever previous speed I was at before I looked and got the free upgrade. Yeah, that's one downside. To, we've been looking at houses in the country, and they're like, yeah, we have internet, but we also have like put an application in for, is it Skylink that's like the the thing that Elon's been working on or whatever? Yep, that's it. That's exactly what I was going to bring up. Yeah, so it's like, yeah, our internet's probably not good because we already have an application in for this. So, <laughs> There's an alternative, too, and potentially, you know, if you do end up moving to a rural community, you might be able to get involved with that community and advocate for some technology bumps. So my example is that my wife's aunt and uncle live in Montana, and they were in Bozeman, and they moved out to a more rural community, like an hour and a half away. And somehow through their community, they were able to get like grant, like federal grants to bring in high speed fiber all over the Mm. place. So they have like 20 acres living right by the mountains. Looks like, I mean, I think they have like a hardware store and a convenience store and like two restaurants in town. Like there's not a lot going on there, but they have high speed fiber that was very impressive. And she said that that was just a, a, they got it from a federal grant that, it in all over the neighborhood to like have them connected to 
services and society and whatnot. So it goes to show you that there's potential to upgrade that circumstance. Well, I guess it depends also how much land you have. Like some of the places, I mean, they're out of our budget, but they have like 90 acres or like a lot. And once you get past like, I think 10 is pretty manageable to run lines, but like 90 is pretty high. So if well, everyone, if you can get like, sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. Let me, you finish yours. <laughs> I was I just going to say if there, everyone has, if everyone has like 90 acres, right? Like then you have a big problem with logistics. Yeah. But if you can get termination points like down the road, right? Here's the main road and there are fiber termination points right to there. And then it's sort of like, it's on you to figure it out from there. You know, you can run your own line all the way down, or you can decide to have like an access point there that's point to point. And yeah, while that's over the air and there's probably some loss, you have a lot of control as to what physical impediments are are there and all kinds of things. So even just offering that, and maybe that's what they did. I haven't, I, I didn't get into the specifics. I can't imagine they ran fiber to everyone's home who was who could be like two miles down off of a normal road or a dirt road even um you know this i doubt they had the resources to like bring it all the way to actual termination but like taking like providing that in general and then being able to like bring it to an accessible point to all these people and if you have 90 acres you probably have the ability to take it the last mile too though yeah, that's true. I mean, I guess I didn't think about just run it on all the main roads and then everyone figures it out from there. Well, let me let me take you down a little story. Uh, <laughs> I know this is your favorite part. Whatever happened in my past life. Uh, so after I concluded my career as a blackjack dealer, at least the first round, I did this twice, but um, <laughs> I... I, I was, I decided like, okay, I'm going to go down a different career path. And, and I was involved in technology a bunch at that point. I was actually building with some friends of mine. We were just building custom windows computers for people. Like first I got involved with them and was building my own custom computers and thought that was really cool. I never actually got like, what is it? A plus plus certification or something that you're supposed to do. Didn't actually do that, but worked with him who was and, was doing a bunch of hardware work and got involved with a startup here that was a ISP. And it was an ISP for two use cases. One would be like in the middle of the city where they're not running new internet lines. Lots of places had to still deal with dial up. And so they would, they would uh, take T1 connections and, and run point to point over the air internet to startups. And then also rural things, similar thing, you know, find a T1 connection that was at a high enough point, put a huge antenna there, and then that signal down provided this wireless internet. It was like very early days, pre-satellite internet kind of setup. Problematic for lots of reasons because like weather can cause issues here and whatever else. Um, yeah, so, so that is, the, the context here is like, that's how I have any knowledge whatsoever about creating point-to-point internet access points or internet like access grids is that you can have like this line with a really fast connection to it and put a huge antenna out that sends your signal and then you'll have these directional antennas that are 
directly pointed at that, which like kind of make that connection and, and give you like actually a pretty decent, you know, kind of fast connection, but it can be problematic. And I don't know what the technology is now. Cause I think that would have been like 2004, maybe something like that. I don't know. It, it's coming up on early days. It was the first company website I ever worked on. That was like legit for one company as their internet person making Wasn't sites. 2004, in, like DSL days. Right. Yeah. Like, so DSL was coming along, but not everybody had access to it. And in the inner city, there was a whole bunch of problems there. And then in rural areas. So maybe it was 2003. I'm trying to think. 2003, 2004. 2004 sounds about right. About the first time where I decided, no. I'm going to leave the casino for a while and get into more of this technology stuff. I've been doing some websites like just more one-offs and like I call them brochure sites, that kind of thing, like turning Photoshop designs into tables, into HTML. And Did you use frames or no frames? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's a good question. I, don't, I think uh, no uh, frames. I don't think any whoa, frames. I don't know. Evolutionary. I can, yeah, I don't know. I can remember dealing with frames, but I don't know if it was a, like editing an existing one with like side projects or the company site had that, but I mean, it's all a nightmare. So yeah, point to point internet access is a, as a thing and a possibility. I'm sure modern technology would make it better, but even more so if somebody brought, you know, fiber lines down my street and I had a big farm, I'd probably pay the money to run that to my house. Oh, a hundred percent. We're talking to you, Underline. Bring us some fiber in Middleburg, Virginia. Thanks. Mm. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, you have some connections. What, what? Yeah, I don't think I have connections to actually get fiber run anywhere, but yeah. Mm. You can, here's what I envision for you. You have a desire to move to Middleburg. Eventually, you become the mayor of Middleburg. Could be. I mean... I uh, I went to get our business license in Middleburg the other day and everyone was super cool. Like I thought it was going to have a lot of uh, bureaucracy and like take a little bit of time because I got there and they were like, oh, you're missing this form and like this guy needs to talk to you or whatever. I was like, okay, like I guess I'll have to figure that out. And they're like, oh no, we'll, we'll just call him and he'll walk down the hall and like we'll figure it all out. <laughs> like they're, they were all super nice. And then... um I'm not sure if the guy that came in is the mayor or not, but someone that's like on council because there's a council room in the back that you can tell is a council room came in and had a huge, like great Dane who was just saying hi to everybody, which was kind of cool. Um, mm-hmm. And then he goes in the back and they like close the doors in the, the council room. So they were like either he's the mayor or someone on council or like, you know, they were doing something. Um, but you know, Seemed like a, a pretty cool place to be. I would not be opposed to to something like that, but um, I don't know. Yeah, uh, put a pin in it. You got some time yeah. to work on your political career. First, becoming yeah. a, a resident of said, I call it a very interesting bubble, Virginia bubble. Yeah, it's also I enjoy Middleburg. So it's tough because like. Some places with a Middleburg address are like 30 minutes from Middleburg, but then places in the plains or somewhere nearby are like five minutes away. So it's 
you know, do you prioritize getting that vanity zip code or just somewhere nearby? I don't know. We haven't decided on that yet. Mm. I would, I mean, I, I have opinions as I do with many things or everything. Some might say, um, yeah, I would think that everything for me is like quality of life for proximity. So do you want that zip code? I mean, I guess you have to be paying taxes in the, into the system to become mayor. I don't know. I don't know the logistics there, but as your starter pack, you can just be close and get to know people and then eventually opt into the zip code. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, there's I'll be just, your campaign uh, manager. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. We'll take uh, take the business there first and take it one step at a time. But it seems like, you know, real estate is crazy right now, so not going to be anytime soon. Yeah, it's almost in the realm of the luxury goods market. Um, we have... We've gotten some kind of soft offers here. You know, like, I don't know. People mailed letters saying they want to be in the neighborhood. And if us or anyone around us that we know wants to sell, uh, you get like the Redfin estimates and offers and whatnot, a bunch. So, yeah, it's a very strange place. But the problem that we have is we like our neighborhood. So even if we sold our home at some potential profit, we'd be buying into this market as well. And then yeah. you're spending more to get something very similar. So it doesn't really make sense. Yeah. I mean, I think the key is like, just find a place you like at a price that's okay. And it's all you can really ask for. Cause like right now it's really hot, but it could crash tomorrow. Like we don't know what's going to happen. So yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, we're just being patient and like, we assume it will probably come down at some point because a increase of like 10 to 15% every year is not sustainable. Like houses will be like, Oh, you got 50 million for like this tiny house. Like, no. So yeah, like it's got to level out or, and, or I guess inflation will just run rampant and everyone will make like four times what they do now. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, you've covered two very broad topics that I don't think we'll ever seriously touch in no. in this podcast, uh, which is real estate and economics. Yeah. You know, and well, both we're going to steer being, away from this. We're already uh, yeah. boring and nerdy enough with our car talk and, and web talk. And, you know, yeah. Unless you want it to be into, something... Unless you want it to be something that I'm either uh, not knowledgeable or very good at. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we kind of went off the rails here from our initial talking about cars. So, I don't know. We could just wrap it up, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So, thanks, everybody. Uh, really appreciate you guys listening. No, we kind of had a bunch of random stuff this time. So, you know, we're definitely interested in some suggestions on what you'd like to hear about. Or if there's whiskeys you would like us to try, let us know. Definitely please subscribe if you've been enjoying this. Uh, Subscriptions really help us out. And catch you guys next time.